This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi, I'm Adam Berkmans, and today we're making General Tso's Redhead Duck. This recipe was created by Sean West, a field staff writer for Harvesting Nature and head of Get Out and Go Hunting. He writes, I was fortunate enough to cross a bucket list hunt off of my list this past November when I went on a layout boat duck hunt near Long Point on Lake Erie. Big water diving ducks were birds I had not had a chance to hunt in the 30 years I'd been waterfowling, and I snapped at the chance when a friend proposed and organized the opportunity. Being run out to the layout boats at the crack of dawn, I was literally vibrating with nervous energy. Our guide gestured at huge rafts of redheads in the outer bay as we settled into the UFO boats, and despite warning us that a potentially slow, common bluebird day was in the cards, I only heard huge rafts of redheads. I'd always wanted to take a stud drake redhead, and that day looked like the chance to do so. The first group decoyed perfectly just after dawn broke, and we scratched down a drake apiece, and throughout the day we whittled our way through a two-person limit, finishing the hunt as the sun slipped below the horizon behind us and a near full moon rose in front of us. As we took some photos and packed up back at the wharf, I was already thinking of how to prepare the birds we had on hand. Since I had a handful of redheads, I decided to make one of my favorite red dishes, a wild game take on General Tso's chicken. Diver ducks can be dogged by a reputation as tasting fishy or muddy, but I experienced none of that. Instead, I found myself devouring crispy, tender duck bites in a sticky sauce that perfectly balanced sweet, salty, and spicy. This dish was immediately addictive, with the duck adding a pleasantly rich and, might I say, more aggressive flavor than just planned old chicken. Serve this with sesame seeds over rice and stir-fried broccoli, and try not to eat it all by yourself. Thanks, Sean. General Tso's chicken is an interesting dish. It's named after the Chinese war leader Tso Zongtang, who grew up in Hunan province. Strangely, old General Tso never actually tasted this dish, nor can it even be found in Hunan or even China at all. Although several claim to have created the dish, many point to Peng Chen Kui, 
a Taiwanese-based immigrant who moved to New York in the 70s as originator. He created the dish at his restaurant and altered it by adding a fair amount of sugar to make it more palatable to white Americans. He named it after the folk hero General So because he too was originally from the Hunan province. The dish was a success and quickly became famous, spreading through restaurants all over the states and eventually the world. Peng later opened a restaurant in Hunan province in the 1990s trying to sell his famous dish there, but the restaurant quickly failed. The reason? Locals thought the dish was way too sweet. Much of what we know as Chinese food here in North America would be relatively unrecognizable back in China, just like General Tso's chicken. Why is that? How did we end up with an entire Chinese cuisine distinct from what those immigrants would have been eating before they arrived? Well, let's get into it. First of all, let's take a brief minute to go over Chinese regional cooking, something I may just do a full podcast on in the future. When we talk about authentic Chinese food, we have to remember that China is a massive country with epically varying landscapes, people, and cuisine. China is split into eight traditional culinary cuisines that differ greatly from each other. Hunan cuisine, for example, the provincial inspiration for General Tso's chicken, is known for its fiery food, full of garlic and hot, fresher pickled chilies. Another, Sichuan food, one of my favorites, is known for the hot and numbing quality that comes from dried chilies and Sichuan peppercorns. Cantonese food is what we're most familiar with here in the West, as it's the basis for most of what we know as Chinese food. It's traditionally lighter and more delicate than food from other regions, and uses seafood, duck, and pork more than any other meats. Spices and herbs are used sparingly, and freshness is highly valued. Dim sum, the famous Chinese brunch, also hails from this region. The reason we're more familiar with food descended from Cantonese cuisine is that the first major influx of Chinese people in America consisted of Cantonese people from the south of China. Chinese immigrants had already been trickling into the states in the early 1800s, mostly settling into ghettos in New York, which eventually became Chinatowns. But the California Gold Rush of 1848 brought an influx of about 30,000 Cantonese immigrants, many of whom settled down in San Francisco, who boasts its own historic Chinatown. Chinese restaurants quickly began popping up on the West Coast, serving newly arrived Chinese immigrants, most of whom were working men and couldn't cook for themselves. Although some of the 49ers who had shown up for the gold rush took advantage of the delicious and cheap food at these chow chow houses, most of the American public still hadn't been introduced to any sort of Chinese cooking at this time. In 1882, during a period of intense anti-Chinese sentiment, President Arthur signed the Chinese Exclusion Act, prohibiting any more Chinese laborers from entering the country. This act excluded merchants though, so one easy way for Chinese immigrants to enter the country was to open a restaurant or a laundry when they arrived. They could then sponsor workers to come over and help with the business. With visas being given out to restaurateurs and train tracks being laid across America, the Chinese restaurants spread, run mostly by Cantonese immigrants. Many of these newer restaurants were built in small towns outside of large Chinese communities. This meant that the food is being cooked for largely white clients. White Americans didn't have a taste for authentic Chinese food, so clever Chinese cooks and chefs adopted the cuisine to suit American tastes, adding more sugar, more batter, more meat, and often just making up new dishes altogether, like egg rolls, chop suey, crab rangoon, beef and broccoli, almond chicken, Mongolian beef, fried rontons, and fortune cookies, and other familiar standards. 
Authentic Chinese ingredients were also much harder to find in the small towns outside of New York and San Francisco, so cooks made do with what was available, another factor in creating what we know as Chinese American food today. The early 1900s saw the emergence of chop suey houses, cool and cheap places for young artists and bohemians to hang out in. Chop suey, a bastardization of the Cantonese phrase odds and ends, became the poster dish for Chinese food across America. As time went on, Chinese restaurants served food that looked less and less like the food they'd find in their country of origin. One notable example of this was bone-in meat. Chinese people thoroughly enjoy eating meat off the bone, and will often chop whole birds or things like pork ribs up with a cleaver and then serve them bone-in on a platter. White Americans, on the other hand, detested this and demanded food served off of the bone at restaurants. White Americans also had a tendency to eat salads or raw vegetables with their meals, something you'd rarely ever see in China. Chinese cooks quickly learned to remove the bones from all of their dishes and started serving salads to appease their new clientele. As more Chinese restaurants opened, newly arrived cooks would take the menu from an existing restaurant, copy it, and then try to improve the dishes in their own way. This eventually led to a strange homogeneity across the board in Chinese restaurants. You'll generally find a very similar menu from place to place all across North America. By the time the 60s and 70s rolled around, new waves of Chinese immigrants started arriving to the States. Many of these immigrants hailed from different provinces like Sichuan, Fujian, Hunan, and also from Taiwan, where many mainlanders had settled during the war. These people mostly settled into large cities where they began serving authentic food from their homeland. Places like Flushing Queens are chock full of insanely delicious restaurants serving food from all over China. Around that same time, Americans began to cook Chinese food at home, buying cookbooks and watching cooking shows. The love affair with Chinese food continued. Chinese restaurants also took swiftly to delivery, takeout, and the all-you-can-eat buffet serving style that Americans at the time were craving. This only served to make Chinese food even more popular with the nation. Despite the love affair America had with the food, the Chinese immigrants cooking that food rarely got any respect. Like the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 18 and early 1900s, many laws have been put in place unfairly targeting the Chinese, especially restaurateurs. Often the butt of jokes, Chinese restaurants become the scapegoat for everything bad or unsavory. I still know people today who swear that the Chinese place down the street got caught serving cat, a baseless urban myth that has persisted since the 1800s. There are no official files anywhere showing that a Chinese restaurant was closed down for serving cat meat, yet the racist and damaging myth persists, causing hardworking families to lose income or even their livelihoods. Chinese restaurants are still victims to racist prank phone calls. Chinese servers demonstrably receive less tips than white servers, and many Asians deal with regular violence and harassment to this day. The anti-MSG explosion of the 90s was another display of inherent racism against the people making America's favorite food. Suddenly, monosodium glutamate, an ingredient used in many Chinese dishes, was vilified, and Chinese food in general vilified along with it, no matter that lots of other common grocery and restaurant foods contain MSG, and no matter that MSG is actually quite harmless. People mowing down on copious amounts of Chinese food would later complain about stomach and headaches, definitely not due to the large amount of sugar and grease consumed in one sitting, and attributed it to MSGs by Chinese cooks. 
This became known as the Chinese food syndrome and has caused a decades-long headache for Chinese restaurateurs. The phrase was penned in a letter appearing in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968, which was later uncovered to be a hoax. The myth still doggedly persists to this day, though. Checking out online restaurant reviews, I often see people vociferously bitching about what the MSG-laden food did to their stomachs, while the restaurant in question clearly boasts that they don't use MSG in their cooking at all. Hmm, strange. These same people don't seem to lash out at Frito-Lay after crushing a bag of Doritos, which are chock full of MSG, so I just can't think of it being anything other than unfair bigotry targeted at the traditional scapegoats of white America. Still, Americans keep flocking to Chinese restaurants and are unlikely to stop anytime soon. Today, there are thought to be over 45,000 Chinese restaurants in the United States, which is more than the number of McDonald's, Burger King's, KFC's, and Wendy's combined. Nowadays, you can quite easily find both authentic regional Chinese restaurants and Chinese-American restaurants both serving delicious food. After decades of culinary evolution, Chinese-American food has become a distinct cuisine in its own right and deserves a place at the table, so to speak. Although it's different than the food that originally inspired it, it's become its own thing, full of history, tradition, and ingenuity. Immigrant food at its finest. One of America's very favorite Chinese-American dishes is General Tso's chicken, which was ranked the fourth most popular dish in American cuisine altogether. Sean does make a convincing argument that General Tso's duck may be an even better dish. Let's see if it catches on. This recipe makes about 8 servings and takes about 45 minutes to make. Ingredients For the marinade 2 pounds of duck breast diced into roughly 1 inch chunks. 2 eggs, beaten. 1 teaspoon of salt. 1 cup of cornstarch. For the stir-fry ingredients. 6 tablespoons of vegetable oil. 20 dried chili peppers. 8 cloves of garlic, minced. 4 teaspoons of ginger, minced. For the general soda sauce, half a cup of vegetable broth. If using store-bought, get the reduced sodium version. Four tablespoons of rice wine vinegar. Four tablespoons of soy sauce. Half a cup of granulated sugar. Two tablespoons of cornstarch. Preparation. Using a rolling pin or meat tenderizer, gently bash the raw duck pieces a few times to tenderize and thin the meat slightly. Toss the duck with the salt, beaten eggs, and cornstarch, and let it sit. Add the rice vinegar, soy sauce, oil, vegetable broth, sugar, and cornstarch in a small bowl and whisk until it combined. Set aside. Spread the duck in a pan with the oil and fry until crispy. Allow space between pieces and do this in batches if needed, replenishing the oil as necessary. Remove the duck and set aside on paper towels and wipe out the pan. Heat the oil in the pan and add the chili peppers, ginger, and garlic and cook for one minute until the ginger and garlic are fragrant. Stir the sauce mixture again to ensure it is combined and add to the pan with the garlic, ginger, and peppers. Stir fine until thickened, it should coat the back of a spoon. Turn off the heat, add the duck to the sauce and toss to coat. Serve immediately with broccoli and rice.
Enjoy. For more great wild fishing game recipes, be sure to subscribe and follow Antler and Finn.